It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. What's up, guys? In today's episode, we finish this incredible three-part series with Balaji Srinivasan, the man that spent a million dollars of his own money just to raise awareness about the trillions of dollars being printed right now. We're about to deep dive into uncharted waters with mind-blowing discussions about the U.S. governmental power, secular nationalism, and the role of fiat currency. Does the power of a nation's military and the strength of its fiat currency truly determine its global dominance? We're going to be diving into that question today. Brace yourself for a revelation that will make you question everything. Make sure you never miss out on these mind-blowing conversations and subscribe to Impact Theory on Amazon Music today. Head over to the Amazon Music app to hear more episodes just like this with the experts and thought leaders that you need access to if you're going to navigate this changing world well. I'm Tom Bilyeu, and welcome to Impact Theory. When you look at uh, categorical errors, I think they are the most dangerous error that you can make because it is to fundamentally misunderstand the nature of the thing. And so if you're Blockbuster or Kodak and you think the nature of the thing is, uh, I am selling you the experience of coming in and selecting a DVD and going home with it. Uh, you're coming in, you're buying popcorn, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and you don't realize that the actual category of thing is I'm just entertaining you in the way that you want to be entertained, or I'm removing friction from the entertainment process. So instead of having to go to a movie theater, you come here and you can pick whatever movie. You don't have to worry about start times, et cetera, et cetera. So if they had understood that what their job was, was to move, remove the friction from the entertainment experience, then they would have seen, oh, Netflix does that even better. So there's even less friction. You get, you know, in the beginning for kids that don't know, it's like you used to ship the DVD back and forth in the mail, but you could go online and say, here are the next three or five, depending on which thing you signed up for videos that I want. As I send them back to you, you send me the next one. So you could watch whatever you wanted. There was no more late fees, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So you take Mao. Mao organizes everybody, steamrolls is the right word. He steamrolls over everybody. Literally, you can't imagine how sinister and evil this guy was. Read Mal, the untold story. It is unimaginable that a human being could do that to other human beings. It's absolutely insane. So he galvanizes this group of people and he thinks that basically terror is the organizing principle. Now he does give them uh, ideology to cling to, but it's really terror that works. And you see him make these realizations throughout his life. Whereas the following regimes realize, oh, actually we can hold people together with ideology and by making them feel better. Now we're seeing sort of a flirtation with a return to the hammer and people uh, can't let you step too far out of line. But to your earlier point, I don't think that they will make the category error of thinking, oh, you can just do the top-down authority and you don't have to give them a better life. Because if if they're really understanding, oh, the nature, the essence of running a government is you have to make people's lives better over time. Now, 
their thesis is as long as you do it at the population level, you can crush some people, use that, the sort of crushing there to keep people in line. But as long as on balance, it's better for people and it continues to get better, everything's going to be okay. So they're focused ruthlessly, me using your words, ruthless execution so that they're they're really able to make your life better. And because they're really able to make people's lives better, because they have not misunderstood, uh, they have not made a categorical error. Okay, so China gets the category thing right. They do well. Mao, I think, misunderstands it. The new regimes get it better, which is why they've had prosperity in a way that Mao has failed to do. Blockbuster makes a category error. Netflix does not. Netflix ends up taking over. Okay, US. US is now beginning to break apart. And the question becomes, are they making a category error or is this just the, the reality of the human? Now, to take this idea and look at it through the lens of what's happening right now is people making a categorical error. Uh, I think that it's it suddenly becomes easier to predict what's going on. So when I look at, when I combine two things, the will to power, which we talked about earlier, where I'd said my prediction engine starts working better when I realize that people have a will to power. They're not necessarily trying to be good, bad or whatever, but they are trying to be in control. They, they want that will to power. And then mix that with a category uh, error that I think they're making, which is that democracy is when a single party who is right has all the control. And the category error there for me is that democracy works and creates a thriving society when and only when there is a respect of the tension between right and left. And that this is where, this is like the the fundamental category error that I think people make, certainly in America, maybe all across the West, that we're seeing play out right now, is that there is a right answer, and that right answer is compassion, and there is a wrong answer, and that wrong answer is the right. And I'm saying, it's pathology on both sides. And it is only the tension between the two that works. And so people have to mistrust their own emotions because everybody thinks their worldview is right. And so the right thinks they're right. The left thinks they're right. Not, not disagreeing, but let me give like a different lens on the situation. One that's that I've thought about a lot actually, which is, um, rebranding versus reinterpretation. Okay. So basically words like democracy, capitalism, communism, Christianity are so capacious they can contain both X and its opposite. For example, Christianity um, was in the times, the time of the Romans, it was like the slave religion, the revolutionary religion that tore down the Roman Empire, right? And, you know, sooner a rich man go through an eye of a needle and get to heaven and the first shall be last and last shall be first. And then after the Dark Ages and, and so on, suddenly Christianity was reinterpreted at, not suddenly, over time, it was reinterpreted and fused with like a lot of the Germanic stuff as a, as what Nietzsche would call a master religion. So now it justified a hierarchy. Now you had the oxymoronic concept of a Christian king, which is like a left-right fusion, right? And you had things where, you think about Christmas, you have um, St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, and you have the manger scene from Bethlehem. And if you think about it, Santa Claus comes from like, these like Northern European, like these snow myths and so on. And Bethlehem is like the Middle East. And that's a fusion of two events that are like, or two cultures that are 5,000 miles apart, you know, right. Or whatever, 3,000 miles apart. They're just totally different, you know, Santa Claus and, and, and Bethlehem. 
we think of them as being the same because they're like a fusion of ideologies that you don't usually give too much thought to. Um, it's like, it's like fusion cuisine or something like that, but fusion ideology. Point is, Christianity contained both a revolutionary ideology and a hierarchical one, which is, it just got reinterpreted. And that's true of communism, which was, you know, the revolutionary ideology of the 1800s. And now, where's the hammer and sickle flying? The, the number one brand of communism in the world is the Chinese Communist Party. You know, Marx's, you know, communist ideology of Northern Europe, where is it most popular? It's flying a flag on a warship in the South China Sea. Okay, that's where the hammer and sickle is. Just think about that, right? That meme, that ideology made its way all the way out there and it got totally inverted from a revolutionary thing into a hierarchical thing, right? Mm. Uh, think about capitalism. Like capitalism could be the agrarian capitalism of the 1800s or the industrial capitalism of the 1900s or the, uh, you know, the information tech capitalism of today. Those are very different things, even if there's some shared patterns, you know? Um, and then finally, democracy, right? Um you know, democracy can mean like FDR style democracy where essentially, you know, he ruled for four, he ruled till he died, right? Basically, another way of thinking about FDR is he was uh, the least bad communist or socialist dictator, okay? And uh, to, 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 you know, I know that sounds provocative, but have you read the book, uh, Three New Deals? Basically, Three New Deals, Reflection of Roosevelt's America, Mussolini's Italy, and Hitler's Germany. How did he rule until he died? He ruled for four times until he died. Isn't that interesting? That's similar to like Stalin and the other dictators of that period, mm -hmm. right? Um, he was he was the least bad of them, but he you know he turned the government on his opponents. He launched audits of them. Uh, he forced their fortunes into trusts, like he went after Andrew Mellon and Huey Long and so on. Um, he ordered the gold seizures. He obviously ordered the Japanese internment. People do know about that. Uh, you know, before he took power, um, he had, there's a thing, the, the gay entrapment, uh, scandal, um, where basically, um, he, you know, this is a thing before he became president where, uh, he had young men go and try to sleep with guys in the Navy to try to find people in the Navy who are gay to get them drummed out of the Navy. The, this MIT has written about this. Sherry Zane has written about this, right? So he did a lot of crazy stuff, right? He wasn't, he wasn't as bad as Mao in the sense of, you know, he didn't kill as many people domestically, but he did order, you know, like the Japanese internment, firebombing, gold seizures. Uh, he was pretty, pretty nasty guy in many ways, right? So Henry Wallace was uh, FDR's vice president, uh, and um, Henry Wallace was a Soviet sympathizer. He actually went and toured Magadan, which is like a Soviet gulag, and um, was like, hey, this is great. It's like the Tennessee Valley Authority, right? And there was a very close race for the vice presidency in 1944 because people knew that FDR was sick. And it was a bunch of ballots, and Harry Truman won on the last ballot. And FDR just didn't fight it too much or whatever. And Truman was just like a cipher. But the entire world was extremely lucky that Henry Wallace didn't become president in 1945 because had he become president, um, he was like a Soviet sympathizer. And he might have just handed over the entire thing to the Soviets and we'd all be under the iron curtain. Now, do you bring up um, FDR in this moment because he's an example of somebody who's reinterpreting uh, like yes, exactly. all of our democratic values, but actually twisting them? Democracy meant FDR 
Democracy meant FDR ruled till he died. Democracy meant FDR built a uniparty. You remember that thing where, where it showed the uh, the graph which had everybody voting together in 1950 and then they'd come mm. apart by 2011? Yeah. Right? So the counter argument to what you're saying is it's not that democracy works when right and left are balanced. It's democracy works when FDR is turned into a uniparty with no real differences. Right, he squashed all the differences. It's like it's like the it was like the Communist Party of China. There's only one party, right? Republican, mm -hmm. Democrat were cosmetic-ish differences, and then they became. But you're saying that's an interpretation of this, versus what what I would say to that is the reason that you're saying that it's good that the other guy didn't get elected is because it was already a perversion of democracy. It was a reinterpretation that man, you can people are malleable. You can get them to buy just about anything. Go ahead. Well, that's the thing. Is basically, I mean. Were there elections? There were elections. Did he happen to win every single one of those elections? He happens to win every single one of those elections, right? Did he ever win four terms, right? So it's not like people say, oh, it wasn't a democracy then, right? Um, people think it's continuously being our democracy. I mean, you know, a similar character, you know, Lincoln suspended habeas corpus, right? Woodrow Wilson, um, you know, like uh, a lot of these guys, a lot of the presidents were, you know, did things that were, uh, you know, were they quote democracy? Um, not by, not by what most people would normally think today. Um, <clears throat> but, but they preserved the brand, you know, and it's, I don't even call it cynical. It's, it's like sort of beyond cynical. It's like, it's like Christianity, as I said, you know, Christianity just has a long history and sometimes it means X and sometimes it means the opposite of X. Right. And so in many ways today, is ultra democracy, right? It's like real democracy. It's not like a single party that has some internal, you know, disagreements. It is, oh, the the form is becoming the substance. The form of elections is actually becoming the substance of warring tribes. Does that make sense? You know, like it does. And so, you know, one way, you know, there's this guy uh, who writes Gray Mirror. This guy. Um, Curtis Yarvin, and he talks about how like Washington and Lincoln and FDR were both all like resets where they just kind of reunified the whole thing after a fragmentation period. And we're actually, uh, you know, like um, France is on its nth republic, right? And in many ways, the US is actually, there was like the 1776 to 1789. And then there's like America 2.0, which is the, you know, the, the Bill of Rights era. And to, to the Lincoln era, then there's America like 3.0. And then we're now actually in America 4.0 and we need an America 5.0, right? 4.0 is like the FDR era with 10th Amendment getting repealed and so on. Meaning the 10th Amendment getting repealed was central government just asserting its power over everything. I think there's some truth to this. Um, I think uh, what's interesting about this is it's not really specific to the person. It was just a global technological trend at that time that, you know, people could execute these roll-ups uh, and the ideologies that worked in the 20th century were communism, fascism, and uh, fortunately, democratic capitalism, which was certainly the least bad of the three. But those were three that worked to roll up huge numbers of people into this mass, this fighting force. Now, today in the internet era, I think we're going to have different ideologies that are optimized for the network as opposed to the state. We're already seeing some of them. Um, wokeism is actually, you know, people have called wokeism similar to communism, but you know, if wokeism, if, if communism starts on the factory floor and there's a strike and it's about redistribution of wealth, wokeism starts on the internet and there's a cancellation and a redistribution of status. Okay. 
And so it's like a network first ideology because most people don't have an experience. Many educated people, even many working people don't have an experience of going to the factory floor and turning a crank and so on. Even working people are often like service workers or retail or, or something like that. So the entire experience of being on a factory, like an assembly line, paradoxically, that's that giving people the training to go in, physically do something, fold into a foreman, that actually helped the union organizers organize strikes because people are used to doing MapReduce in the physical world, right? Now, today, people are not used to doing that, but you know what they are used to doing? They're used to hitting keys on their phone or their laptop. And so any ideology in the West has to start network first. It has to start with the keyboard and the laptop. It can't start with, you know, in it, it, it has to be digital first because anything that's a 20th century throwback is simply not the experience. The ideologies that worked in the 20th century are not the experience of people today. The exception is China that still has huge amounts of factories. So they can still do 20th century like things where they have these giant military marches and these giant parades and 20th century industrialized gear and so on and so forth. Because a huge, much larger percentage of their population has the current experience of living and working in a factory. Right. Mm. Um, that is just not the case in the U S and that, and the reason I say this is these are like sort of technological societal substructures that underpin what ideologies are ideologies are even feasible. Okay. So my question is when a 20th century, uh, machine like China that is still capable of the big marches and all that meets a network state that is more optimized around smaller ideologies, not necessarily geographically bound, uh, who's going to win? And, and obviously I'm asking that in the context of we have a potential collision on the horizon between America and China. Yeah. So I have a different view on what I think is going to happen here. And the short version is um, I'm bullish on red America and gray America in the sense of the let's call it the conservatives and the tech libertarians. Uh, it's not exactly libertarian, but it's roughly say tech. I'm very bearish on blue America. And what I actually think is we may see like a financial collapse in blue America that makes it difficult to wage a giant war against China, A. B is I don't actually even think that would be a competitive fight, much less so than people think. I think people think of the U.S. as like the overdog versus China, but I actually think if it if push comes to shove in any conventional war China wins – especially in the medium run. And the reason being because they just have the manufacturing plant. It's like fighting your factory. They'll screw you on the screws. You know, they just outproduce. It takes years and years and years. I mean, just like the nuclear subs in the AUKUS deal, Australia, UK, US, they're supposed to arrive in like <clears throat> 2030 or 2040 or something like that. It takes decades to do things in the US to build things physically. And it's not like it just becomes magically faster or more cost-effective. And cost-effective is very important, by the way. When it comes to military equipment, it's F-35, it's the Zumwalt, the you know the Ford-class uh, aircraft carrier, the um, Lural combat ship. You know, like look, I'm not a military expert, but from everything that I can see, there's massive cost and time overruns in military equipment as there are in um, in the public sector. The 300 million dollar bus lanes are. You know, the same kind of thing in the Pentagon. There was a woman recently who was talking to John Stewart. You can probably play that clip. The deputy defense secretary, I think, is Kathleen Hicks, um, saying mm, it wasn't a big about deal. About the audit? Yeah, the audit, right? Like, couldn't, the Pentagon couldn't find a few trillion dollars. I mean, come on, right? Like, the, the thing is that um, 
actually, I was able to, to boil it down to two premises. Do you believe the U.S. can print infinite money? And do you believe the U.S. has an invincible military? Do you believe mm. A, B, both, or neither? Okay. And it actually turns out, to my surprise, so first of all, uh, just my audience alone, do you know how many people said uh, the U.S. can neither print infinite money without consequence, nor has an invincible military? What percentage of my audience do you think said no to both? Yeah, more of them thought that was possible than either of us would have expected. Less, actually. 44%, in my view, 44% of the people who responded to my poll said they think the U.S. neither can print infinite money nor has invincible military. So it means 55% of my audience. Did you, didn't you expect your audience to, to put that super high? Yes. I, I thought your audience would be way more sophisticated, be like 90% are like, no way, can't do either. Yes. U.S. military, not invincible, printing money, can't do it. Correct. So that means that if, if 55% of my audience thinks the U.S. can either print infinite money or has invincible military or both, if that's 55% of my audience, that's 95% or more of like the, right? So, so what that means is um, just to calibrate, I recognize that what I'm about to say is uh, contrarian because it is not what, what most people have been raised to believe. They've been raised on Transformers and G.I. Joe and Independence Day, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, whether people think the U.S. military is good or bad, they do think of it as invincible or all-powerful, and that is intentional. The movies portray it that way. The military collaborates with filmmakers on that to make it look cool, both for recruiting purposes and intimidation purposes. You know, like all kinds of movies, you know, aliens attack the world and the decision goes to Mr. President, what should we do, you know? And, you know, that wouldn't work if it was the president of Bolivia, you know? You're not looking to the like that would have to be a plot point in the movie. Why are we looking to Bolivian president? You know, the, by default, uh, you know, people will look to the secret labs of the USA, the secret CIA. This, even when the US is the bad guy, like in the Born Supremacy or something, they're uh, they're the powerful one, right? That has just started to change with movies like Don't Look Up. Okay, mm. if you compare Contagion of 2010 to Don't Look Up, you seen that movie? Don't Look Up. Yes. It's really worth watching because it is, I think it was meant to be like a climate change parable. I took it as mm. a COVID parable, but really just a parable on state capacity. And it was an interesting transitional movie because it still portrayed the U.S. as being central to global events in the sense of all the action about the meteors and stuff like that. People are looking to the president and so on and what to do. But... Unlike Contagion or many of the other movies of the Silk, it portrayed the U.S. as a basically politically conflicted, bumbling kind of thing that wasn't able to solve it at the end, and the world did end. Okay, mm -hmm. very different than Independence Day or or even I mean the movie Contagion in 2010. In retrospect, it actually got a lot right. You know, origin of the virus and so on and so forth. Uh, what it got wrong was that the CDC and the government were competent, <laughs> right? And that they were like, you know, calm, well-meaning, apolitical civil servants as opposed to mm. basically, you know, right, what, what, what happened. And so that was actually the fictional part. The fictional part was not the virus. It was the com competence of the U.S. government, the state capacity, right? So the reason I say all this is 
to project the future of the world, I actually think you can boil it back to those two premises. Do you think the U.S. can print infinite money without consequence? Do you think the U.S. is an invincible military? And the reason is fiat currency is backed by men with guns. Okay, Paul Krugman has admitted that and said that. It's a little quote. He's like, fiat, fiat money is backed by men with guns. What he means by that is that, um, you know, like uh, the backing isn't like a bar of gold. The backing is state force. It'll force you to accept the currency. It'll, you know, it'll throw you in jail if you don't and all this type of stuff, right? If you want a fighting chance against the competition, you need to be using the best technology and platforms in the world like Shopify. For whatever and wherever you want to sell, from launching to going international, Shopify is the global commerce platform that will help you grow at every stage of your business. Shopify is your all-in-one platform to quickly and efficiently take your business to the next level. Now, I love everything about Shopify because it makes it so easy for you to start, run, and grow your business. It didn't used to be this easy. I'm telling you, back in the day, it was a lot harder. I'm so jealous. Shopify powers more than 10% of all U.S. e-commerce because businesses that want to grow quickly and efficiently choose Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash impact now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash impact. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with ebay motors brake kits led headlights exhaust kits turbochargers bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time or your money back plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply it's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. But here's the thing. Um, in general, more people on the left will say the U.S. can print infinite money. In general, more people on the right will say the U.S. has an invincible military. But these are actually equivalent premises. You know why? Because they're both fake? Well, because if fiat currency is backed by men with guns, you can have a mathematical, it's like an if and only if kind of thing. It's like if you can print infinite money, again, without consequence, you can buy whatever soldiers and guns you need. 
Whatever technology you need, whatever bombs you need, you can just buy it. Infinite money, no consequence. Conversely, if you have an invincible military, you can force people to accept your terrible currency no matter how devalued it is, right? So those are an if and only if. A implies B and B implies A, okay? So um, so these two things, in a sense, even if the left and right disagree with each other, they sort of prop each other up. It's like vectors that oppose on this axis, but some on this axis. Do you know what I'm saying, right? So- um, the, uh, it's like, you know, the, the, the compassionate mother and stern father visions of the state, some in a vision of it as being omnipotent. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's like literally replacing G O D with G O V. Okay. Like God replaced with the state, God replaced with government. And it, and people have talked about this political theology and so on. Carl Schmitt has written about this. I wrote about this in the Network State book. Um, it's, it's basically what is the strongest force in the world? Is it almighty God? Is it the U.S. military? Or is it encryption? Is it God, state, or network? And from that, you d- derive a lot, a lot, right? And so a lot of these people who believe the U.S. can print infinite money or that has an invincible military are literally people who think of the government as God. They don't think it has limits. They're secular. They don't believe in a, a supernatural. Um, they also don't believe in encryption, and they don't believe in other states, right? Like they are secular nationalists. And they're most comparable, frankly, to people in the late Soviet Union who also were secular. They didn't have Christianity. The network and capitalism, you know, they didn't, didn't have that really. They really believe in the state. They've been raised in the state. And even if they were critical of the state, they fundamentally thought – you know, it'd be edits around the communist system. I think everybody has a God-sized hole that they have to fill. What form can religion take that is the most useful or at least least damaging? Well, I think there's multiple solutions to this. And so I don't think there's any one form per se, you know, like for example, like um, there have been, there've been times when Christianity's done, you know, the Spanish Inquisition and there's times when it's built great cathedrals and there's times when, you know, the Islamic world, like the Abbasids and the Umayyads have had, you know, amazing, um, you know, art and, and science and other times when it's been, you know, less fortunate and, you know, same with Hinduism and same with every great religion. Right. And so, um, even communism as, as anti-communist as I am, um, you know, as it, as we mentioned before, the word contained both X and its opposite, right? Um, and today, China's communist, but it's producing a lot, and a lot of people there who, you know, there's a lot of people there who actually like it, right? I, you know, I, I, I maybe they don't have options, but but um, it's producing a lot. And so, so the question of you know religion here, um, it's it's basically an organizing principle, and. Uh, there's, there's just many different possible. It's, it's sort of like saying, and this is a trivial sounding example, but um, are you using uh, the Google stack or the Microsoft stack for your company, right? And you can kind of be successful with both and you can fail with both. Um, and a lot of it is in the leadership and how it kind of uses that software. That's not to say that every software- If, if you had to predict then yeah. why one will go pathological at any one time, is is it predictable based on uh, other cultural forces or just not predictable at all? I'm not saying religions are infinitely plastic, you know, but they're pretty plastic. You can you can make them say, as I said, both X and the opposite of X and Y and Z. Uh, I, I do think that when uh, a group is under threat, 
especially if it's under threat economically or something like that. It starts asserting, okay, we're poor, but we're better. You know, like, uh, for example, in the Soviet Union, like, oh, yeah, well, maybe the capitalists have more money, but we're, co- we're purely communist and we're sharing and they're exploiting each other or whatever, right? And, um, you know, you'd see in, you know, like um, various places, people would say, well, oh, you know, the Westerners, they may be wealthy, but they lack spirit, you know, like in India, you know, we, we're, you know, we're more spiritual or whatever. That'd be a defense I would hear at times in, in the past. And nowadays, though, you hear that kind of cope coming from the West, which is, sure, everybody else is economically out executing us in Asia or whatever. But, uh, you know, China's doing that because they're a communist dictatorship. And, you know, yeah, we might be poorer or, or we build slower, but that's because we're a democracy. We're better morally, right? And as I mentioned, like when the U.S. was a democracy – ostensibly, at least in the mid-century, it could build. And when China was even more genocidally, you know, much more genocidally communist in the 70s, it couldn't, right? So that's not actually the active ingredient there. So it's not a moral, you know, salve, or at least it's not in an obvious way. If you have all four quadrants, democracy that can build, democracy that can't build, communism that can't build, communism that can, then it doesn't seem like that's the active ingredient per se, you know? So I don't know, I'd say it's in a sense... um, uh, I mean, it's kind of it's 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 just what the leadership is that can take that ideology and shape it into something. You know, it has to have. I, if if your ideology was flat Earth ideology, you probably couldn't shape it into something. But the great religions have endured over a long period of time because they do have some way of organizing people, right? They do work. They like they install in human brains and they have the right hooks and so on to build communities and, you know, enforce laws and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, all, all the, all the groups that you read about in the Bible that got killed didn't have good enough operating systems to make it to the present day. So basically just like you can have atheist, monotheist, polytheist with, with God, right? Like no gods, one God, many gods, right? You know, so like monotheist is like uh, the Abrahamic religions, polytheist, like Hinduism, you could have atheist, monotheist, polytheist with states, right? The a-statist is like an anarchist, whether they're a left anarchist or an anarcho-capitalist, uh, right? Um, the uh, monostatist is like, you know, America first or, you know, Chinese nationalist. And then a polystatist is like a digital nomad or remote worker. And so, for example, there's a difference between the person who believes in no states and the person who believes in many states, um, just like there's a difference between the atheist and the polytheist, Right. Hindu doesn't believe in no gods. They believe in many gods, even if they're often equated by the monotheist, right? So like somebody who jumps between countries and is remote working or digital nomad is not against a state to maintain order. They just want a choice of states. They're very different than an anarchist. Does that make sense? Even if they're often equated with them. Okay. And then the third category on the network, that is in some sense the newest, in some sense the oldest, but you know, by the network, today it's very literal, like the internet. But in the past, you can think of it as capitalism or peer-to-peer relationships and so on. And in fact, there's this guy, Jacob Burkhart, who many, many, many years ago, way before the internet was invented and so on, said, you know, the three great forces. It's funny. I found this just in an old book and I was like amazed at it. And I tweeted it. It's like the three great forces are um, the state, the church, and uh, then he called it culture. But by culture, he was talking about all peer-to-peer interactions. And he essentially said it's everything that's not – you know, the state or the church or whatever, right? And so he was talking about God's state network even then, which is amazing, someone else coming to mm. 
similar kind of thing. Okay. This book, I think is force and freedom by, by Burkhart. Anyway, the network, you could be an atheist, uh, monotheist and polytheist with respect to network. So the, for example, the no coiner is somebody who doesn't believe in Bitcoin at all. They're like an a coiner, right? Then a monocoiner mm. is like a Bitcoin monotheist, right? A maximalist or an Ethereum maximalist. Um, and uh, a polycoiner is someone who holds multiple coins. And of course, this can apply to social networks as well. But I think what's going to happen, we're still in the transitional stage, but social networks and cryptocurrencies and messaging apps and so on all become the same thing. Like every social network has a built-in cryptocurrency and it had like uh, of a certain scale. Okay, we're still like in the same sense that you might say we're early in the internet, but these things are relatively young, you know, and um, monetizing social networks becomes much easier with the cryptocurrencies and, and so on. So I think that's already starting to happen with like, for example, Farcasters, native currencies like Ethereum and um, uh, Noster is like, you know, it's got a Bitcoin community and Elon may add Doge or something like that to Twitter. I have no information about that, but I think so. Um why do you, why does that end up happening? What is what is the nature of the network state that makes that a function? This is not even the network state yet, but it's just uh, you know, social networks allow for communication, they should allow for transaction, right? You can you can do very complicated communications on social networks. If you think about it, you can do a, a message to I can send a message to 900,000 people like this, okay? You know how hard it is to deliver like a piece of mail to 900,000 people? It's like really mm. expensive and time consuming and so on, right? If you, if you go back, I mean, every individual jump, um, this is funny, you know, this is actually reconciling the Peter Thiel and Evan Williams School of Technological Innovation. Thiel is like zero to one, like have a huge jump, right? Evan Williams says everything is incremental innovation. You just take what it is and make it faster, better, right? But you actually reconcile in the following way where you go from physical mail to email in the late 80s, early 90s, and you still have to buy it. You have to buy a big bulky computer. Somebody else has to have an internet connection with a modem. They have to also have a bulky computer. That's like thousands of dollars of setup and training cost versus just send an envelope, right? But you do get instant, right? You do get same day, you know, there and back, right? Then you go from physical mail to email to uh, group email with reply all, and then so-called MIME attachments. So you now have attachments, you can have photos and stuff. And then you go to like a Facebook thread and each step is like, you know, incremental, right? It's like obviously continuous with the previous one. Like a reply all with attachments is like a email group, which is similar to a Facebook thread, right? Where, right? But if you think about implementing a Facebook thread with physical mail, what would you do? You'd post a postcard of like some, I don't know, like um, somebody posts a, a, a photo of uh, some party or something like that or a wedding or whatever. And they're going to send that to 900 people. They're going to print out that postcard, send it to 900 people. And all those people are going to make a remark on it, lol or great. And they're going to send it to the other 900 people. You know, if you just think about how many broadcast messages that is, Right. A Facebook thread that has that goes to 900 people and has 10 people comment has like 9,000 messages being sent back and forth. I mean, that would cost an enormous amount of money in terms of postcards, right? So like what social networks have done in terms of communication relative to the world we grew up in the 80s is absolutely incalculable, you know, or it is not incalculable. It's calculable, but it's massive, right? A, a communication that would have cost you your entire year's salary is completely free, right? Mm. With me so far? So that 
is what's happening with cryptocurrency. It's making, I mean, every form of cap, everything you can think about with capital formation, you could spool up an on-chain entity, you could finance it, it could acquire something, it could sell something, it could have AI operated, it could acquire another thing, it could all be bought. All capitalism becomes digital and on-chain. Like that's obviously the way things go because we're still in this transitional era where you have paper definitions of entities, right? And yet everything else about, you know, the business world is online, but you have these paper documents that, you know, how do you know, for example, can you just run a script over your company to make sure you're in compliance with every contract? Does every contract have a machine readable thing which says how to pay this person and who pays it and who's the signatory and what is the constraints that you need to be in? Like one way of thinking about a company is like a contract execution engine. It's bound by a bunch of contracts. It must do X to receive Y and so on. That's like a lawyer's way of thinking about it. If you've ever done a data room for a company's acquisition or, or even a VC investment, you have to compile all these contracts that bind the company, this employment contract, that contract for delivery of this, this debt contract, and so on and so forth. All that should and will be programmable. And all of that will happen on in, integrated, in my view, into either social media or chat or some combination where you have a group of people. They're not just chatting with each other. You can not just do a group chat. You can instantly have a group not just a crowdfunding, but like an economic vehicle. Like, why can't you just instantly start a company with 10 other people and just start doing things and selling things, right? It's because it's a pain to go and set up a company and tear it down, just like it used to be a pain to go and get a radio license, but now I can just jump on a podcast, right? And um, so so that's, that's why, uh, like, it's obvious to me that, like, on-chain stuff, that crypto is, is going to be a big thing, uh, is a big thing, but it's, it's, it's like, like, clearly obvious, but... Um, not everybody is, is there yet. Well, the big question that I have is, as we really begin to put a fine point on exactly what the phenomenon is that is the network state. So you, we were talking about the different forms that God takes. And one of the forms is, is crypto, the network state. So what is that organizing principle? There's kind of two different things, which are what's the scenario for the current world? That's why I was on the unprintable money and, and so on and stuff. And then what is what do I think is a piece of the next world, not the only piece. We start new currencies. Can we start new countries? That's the cons of the network state. I wrote a book at the networkstate.com. It's V1. It'll be updated, um, but you can go and read it there. And I think it's, it's decent. And so the premise is that starting new countries is possible, preferable, and profitable. So let's first talk about the possible part. Are new countries even possible? So, you know, we know that we've started new companies like Google out of a garage uh, and new communities like Facebook out of a dorm room and new currencies like Bitcoin off of a white paper. So could we start new countries, right? And as crazy as that sounds, let me first give you a visual of what this might look like, okay? So this is a visual of a network state. It's something which, it's a group of people that has a population comparable to that of a legacy nation state, but has an annual income and physical footprint also comparable to one. The main difference is that it's physically distributed rather than concentrated in one place. So it might have the total land area of an Estonia collectively owned by the people, but just spread all over the world in ranches and subdivisions and towns and cul-de-sacs. Like imagine a Chinatown was actually collectively owned by the people and part of a global network of them. Okay. And just to see how a network state could build out, do you see this GIF on screen? All right, so I'm just going to play this. Yep. It starts from one person in Tokyo, okay? If I play this, you go from one person in Tokyo, they're just making, you know, this is how a founder could go from one to a million, right? One, then 17 people, 172, 
172,000, and so on. This is how the network state builds out, okay? And you essentially recruit people from around the world who have this collective hallucination, and they crowdfund larger and larger things until you start a new country. As crazy as that is, right? Now, how would you actually go about doing that? Let me give a little bit more meat on the bone, as you put it. Basically, most countries are actually small countries. Most of the United Nations has less than 10 million people. There's only 14 countries with more than 100 million people, okay? And non-obviously, we've actually seen a lot of new countries since the UN. Remember my thing about how 1950 was peak centralization, Mm. right? The unusual thing about our period, in my view, is – so if you look, because of the breakdown of the British Empire and the French Empire and then over here the Soviet Empire, all these new countries arose, and for the last 30 years, we've been in a very unusual time of a unipolar world, right, with this hyperpower. And when that breaks down, uh, you know, the number of new country type entities will go absolutely vertical. Just like, you know, this curve kind of looks like the number of new currencies as well. As you go from like 50 something UN member countries to like 190 today, it's almost like a 4X, by the way. You don't think of it as being, we have 4X as many countries or UN members, let me, that's a precise definition, at least for today. You don't think we have 4X as many UN members as we did in 1945. Point is, as this sort of, it's like atoms decomposing, as these things fly into different directions. Now, um, you know, the, the number of countries has been flat for a while, but then so was the creation of new currencies, and then it spiked, right? So UN membership has grown over time. So if you 4X'd these things, right, um, could we do more, right? So first premise then again is most countries are small countries. Second is lots of new countries have been founded, okay, actually or, or, or gained UN membership. Third premise is that cryptocurrencies rank with fiat currencies. So here is um, basically the, you know, this is a funny site called fiatmarketcap.com, okay, like coinmarketcap. And the thing is that at the time of this, you know, screenshot or whatever, Bitcoin was the 27th currency globally by market cap. So the question is, could crypto countries rank with fiat countries? And how would that look? Well, before we had a table of currencies, now we take the Wikipedia, you know, the table of countries, and right over here, something that has 1,729,314 people would nestle right between Bahrain and Latvia, okay? And whereas this would be in Europe and this would be in Asia, this is global and decentralized. It breaks a fundamental assumption, which says it has to be in one place, that's what the internet allows. It allows us to this – this is one of several, I think, critical insights or critical insights. Let's say if you believe this, it's an important insight. The internet allows us to network enclaves. So lots of fragmented pieces of territory and fragmented groups of people are much more useful than they were before. So it's the opposite direction of the whole roll-up era of the nation state. You have the fragmentation era, and the network state rolls them up in a different way online. So they're unified in the cloud, but they're separated on the land. And not completely separated, but they're in clusters. And the thing is that if you look at most countries, they're not growing that much in population, but the network state would, or a network state, because this is just an example of one, would grow by immigration and reproduction. And so if you want to solve the birth crisis or what have you, you can't really do it necessarily with economic incentives like Singapore or other places have tried that. I think you kind of need to give type A personalities a leaderboard on which they want to win. Okay. 
And so you knock out, you have 10 kids, boom, you just contributed. Like you can actually have personal contributions to this leaderboard over here and you gain status in society for doing that. And that is actually the kind of thing, if you want to quote fix birth rates, I think it's the kind of thing that would work, right? Um, so, <clears throat> so could crypto countries rank with fiat countries? And this is where a network state would, uh, would rank. And of course you could have multiple of them. All right. And so one key concept here, and this is the one that's the biggest sticking point for some people. Everybody's got a different sticking point. They're like, why do you think you could become UN recognized? Well, the answer is sufficient traction results in diplomatic recognition. How do we know that? Well, Tuvalu uh, has done deals with GoDaddy. Okay. So that's like a sovereign country has done, you know, basically the .tv extension. If you've ever seen like twitch.tv or something, that's, that's Tuvalu and GoDaddy have mm. a deal. Nevada, a state, has done a deal with Tesla for the Giga factory. El Salvador accepts Bitcoin as its national currency. And there's many more examples of this. Columbia did a deal for the .co domain name. Um, Virginia with Amazon for HQ2. The mayors of Miami and New York accept Bitcoin. Wyoming and Tennessee have DAO laws, so they're interfacing with Ethereum. So if you have companies and um, uh, currencies interfacing with cities and countries, um, the land is already negotiating with the cloud, right? That for, for a sufficient scale of money and a sufficient, you know, let's say oomph and social impact, um, already today, lots of politicians love to have a photo op with a prominent entrepreneur who has a large online following. That's a huge thing today, mm. right? Especially if they're trying to recruit tech or founders to their region, the endorsement of that founder is like a huge thing. They bring economic development. The only people who don't get this are in DC because they've taken it for granted forever. Mm -hmm. Right. Exit is the leverage where it's like, oh, you can't take those founders or entrepreneurs for granted. You have to attract business to your area, right? Only if you've inherited it, can you take it for granted. Okay. So sufficient traction equals diplomatic recognition. So now number two, starting new countries is preferable, right? So why are new countries preferable? It's both a push and a pull. So first is that's like, you know, Sri Lanka and Venezuela and Panama. There's a lot of instability in the world right now, thanks to inflation, thanks to, you know, like things like Ukraine and whatnot. So um, there's all these sovereign debt crises that are happening. So powerless people now have an alternative to fail states. Okay, so that's one side of it. The other side is ambitious people now have an alternative in the form of frontier societies. Okay, so since humans expanded out of Africa, since people came to the U.S. for the Statue of Liberty, for the moon landing, and so on, you know, they can come from America for the moon landing. But since, you know, the, the moon landing, there's, a, there's something within the human spirit that's pioneering, that wants to push frontiers, right? And that's actually present in every culture. You know, China had Zheng He, even if, you know, they, they pulled that back, right? Obviously, the Native Americans, you know, their ancestors made it across the Bering Strait. And... Um, you know, Indians have their emigrant culture, like everybody, many cultures have something in them that's like, okay, we drive to push the frontier, whether it's science or technology or the physical world, right? And what's funny is this coalition of the powerless and the power user is actually the same as a crypto coalition. Crypto is not for buying coffee. That's actually the middle class normie use case. What crypto is for is for the powerless people who are just trying to hang on to a bank account and the power user is pushing the limits of what a bank account even is. And, uh, and that's the same as what the network state is for. If you've got a decent upper middle class or middle class existence in a normal first world country, you may not care. But if your country is breaking down or you want to um, break into the future 
and have the self-driving car city or the um, longevity land where people are actually focused on, you know, transhumanism or human self-improvement, you need to be able to change regulations. The communities that you start here, uh, even if they look like this on the map, they don't all have to try to go for diplomatic recognition, mm. right? So they can have different levels of, quote, sovereignty or what have you. The point is, however, that you can network communities together all around the world. You can find your people and live with them and crowdfund buildings together. Okay. So that's why network states are possible. Here's why they're preferable. Finally, profitable. <clears throat> so last but not least, like this is a fun graph, which is ARPU's annual revenue per user of nation states, social networks, and network states. So I've, you know, just to kind of, um, it's a fun equ equivalence, but consider your tax revenue as being the revenue of a nation state from a person and your normal, you know, revenue like ad revenue is the social network revenue. Social networks are known to have the scale of hundreds of millions or even billions of users, right? This is meta, WeChat, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, et cetera, hundreds of millions to billions of users, but their monetization per user is only in like the tens of dollars. Okay. But if you make $20 per person and you have 4 billion people, that's $80 billion a year. It's an amazing amount of money. Jesus. Right? Okay. Conversely, the nation states, um, many of them are small. They have much fewer people, like one to five million people. That's like Estonia, Singapore, Israel, et cetera. But their monetization per person is in the tens of thousands of dollars per. Okay. Mm. Then up over here, here's the US and here's China. And that's why they are the quote two superpowers because they have the highest combination of scale and monetization per person. Right. They have enormous scale and monetization, right? And it's a log scale on mm. this axis, okay? A successful network state, though, like a public company, would be around here. So they'd be lucrative enough, crucially, that they could attract venture capital, they could attract financing, and that's important because something like this, the more people you can align behind something, the more feasible it becomes. So this shows, that I think, because it's profitable, it becomes more economically feasible. You're not going, you know, pushing downhill. In a sense, it's like a mm. physical social network. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Now I want to battle to the death on how real... Uh, I think this is okay. So I love this concept. I think it's really interesting, but every time I think about this, my brain breaks a little because I have some core fundamental things that seem like they are showstoppers, but I know you've thought a lot more about this than I have. Okay. So, uh, the way that I see this is that the nation, the, the actual nations that these reside within will fight this with everything they have. And so I will give people exhibit a. Um, so exhibit A is the U S we, we have become regulatory, uh, just 
oppressive when it comes to crypto and Web3. And so when I see that posturing, and, and I know that that creates opportunities, it creates opportunities at the state level, it creates opportunities at the national level, but because you're going to have the the interjurisdictional warfare, even a country that opens itself up and is like, okay, this is going to be our differentiator. How are they going to make their money for letting you be the nation state? So it's basically worst case, you have a country that clamps down. So the U.S. right now is making no moves to let this happen. They're they're taking the exact opposite tact. In fact, I've heard you say that the U.S. is mimicking China and how they're locking down on everything or cracking down on everything. So first, the U.S. is not, a, it's not united anymore. It's not a unitary entity. D.C., and, and blue America is hostile to new stuff, absolutely. But red and purple America may not be, number one. Number two is um, the design of the network state is set up to be resistant to the nation state in the same way that Bitcoin is. It's physically decentralized, right? So if you've got- Yeah, then let's have this debate. So I don't, I don't think Bitcoin is very resistant. Um, disabuse me of this. If you have, I get that you can make it hard for me. I get that you make it more expensive. We talked about that earlier, but dude, I only have to destroy the lives of so many people before people either flee, at which point I clamp down on you anyway, and I'm going to capital control the shit out of you. And so you try to leave and I'm like, yeah, you're going to pay, what was it? A hundred months of salary or whatever countries have done uh, like with, diploma. yeah, like a Soviet you know, Union, right? Right. Like they're, they are going to find ways to stop you from being capital flight. Uh, so this is going to be a huge fight. I'm, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with that. Um, but I don't think that legacy governments are going to win it. And uh, or, or rather, they're not going to win it to 100 percent. OK. Agreed. And I'll, I'll give several arguments for this. The first is that in the centralizing arc upward, you had, you know, the brain trust, you ever heard of that? FDR had all these smart guys, you know, th there, there was, yep. there's a period from the early 1930s to 1969, where you had Hoover Dam, Manhattan Project, Apollo, where all the smart guys could no longer, this is crucial, they could no longer go and found, they couldn't be Rockefeller and Carnegie and, and so on and so forth. So they joined the government. That's why you had all this tech talent in the government. That's an unusual thing. All these, you know, genius scientists and so on and engineers. After that period, the IQ and before that period, the IQ drained out of the federal government. Like the federal government did not get the best people, arguably, in the 1800s. They were, they were all building railroads and, you know, then later automobiles and aviation in the early 20th century, right? Um, it, was, it was something which was an aberrant time. And now today, a lot of the IQ, a lot of the intelligence – has gone out of especially the U.S. federal government. Okay, if you have um, a perfect, you know, math, SAT, and, um, you know, you're, you're really good with numbers, you can make a lot more money in being an AI engineer or an AI founder than you can as, like, some bureaucrat regulating it, right? Um, and then, you know, like, and you have potentially more power as well in the sense of, you can build the entire thing from scratch. You have more creative control, right? This is why you're seeing lots of professors leaving Stanford and other things to go and start companies. This is why you're seeing journalists go to Substack. This is why you're seeing, um, you know, people leave Wall Street to go to fintech or crypto. Like 
the East Coast establishment just doesn't have the pull that the frontier does, right? That's A. Uh, so, so a lot of the charisma and the IQ has been just drained out of the centralized state in the opposite of what the 20th century was. Okay, so that alone, by the way, just you know, saying personnel is policy. Number two is um, foreign affairs, you know, has admitted, you know, it's kind of lagging in here, but they've admitted the world is now uh, multipolar, which means that blue America has more power over fewer people. You're, they're seeing red America and purple America break away at home. You have states. It's not just sanctuary cities, but it's like gun laws, drug laws, abortion laws, education laws, crypto laws, all kinds of things make America states again. Like DeSantis has his own military, the Florida State Guard. Do you know that? The, the degree to which states are breaking away from the feds and simply just disobeying them and just doing what they want um, is more similar to the pre-1933 and arguably the pre-1861 era. And there's a huge tension between states and the feds there within the U.S. Then outside the U.S., the foreign affairs point about the world being multipolar, as we talked about earlier, you have Brazil and France and Saudi and Iran and China. It's not just China, Russia, Iran anymore, by the way, on their own. It's all these countries in the middle who are breaking away. Uh, you know, Fiona Hill, who's this um, national security person, actually admitted this in the Lenart Mary lecture that she gave like a few weeks ago. Um, I'll just quote this one second. Um, as you look that up, one thing to, to have in the back of your mind, this feels to me like it only works if there is catastrophic um, fragmentation. Like e even the states breaking back apart, I doubt is going to be enough. It feels like, did you, have you read the book Infomocracy? I've heard of it. Go ahead, remind me again. Oh my God. This is like, I'm surprised you didn't write it. So this is a sci-fi book about the network state come to life. And so like every block, the rules change and you just get an update to your phone. That's like, okay, you've entered this zone and here are the rules that you might want to know about. And basically everybody gets to vote with their feet constantly. And you're moving from one jurisdiction to another. And if you like that jurisdiction, you move in, you stay. And if you don't, you leave. And so people are constantly vying to get people to come to them. And the, the conceit of the book is basically that we got to that point, but that, that to me is like the miracle. The miracle is that the States will let this go to that point. The one thing I'll say is the reason that this idea is so interesting to me. And the reason that I am so fascinated by how your mind works is you're the only one that goes, yeah, we probably are going to fall apart. Oh, and by the way, don't worry. There's this other thing. I think if there wasn't a, like, if we didn't begin the, the first several hours of this conversation, describing how we're standing at the precipice and we're about to fall off, uh, I, I wouldn't buy into this idea at all. I'd be like, nice idea. But it's geographically bound ultimately, and this is never going to work. But I do think that as El Salvador tries to use like, oh my God, like our currency is a mess. We have to use the some of these ideas, cryptography specifically, in order to restabilize. Maybe Argentina starts to do the same thing. Maybe other countries are like, hey, wait a second, this is actually pretty interesting. If the US goes through a tremendous moment of crisis, which for reasons we have talked about, I think borders on inevitable... If I am right that you cannot just print infinite money, but they're going to try and you're going to have a problem, you, you're you at least, I think, going to break back into states. That's my sort of thesis on that, uh, is that the state becomes the more dominant relationship between the federal government and the states. Yeah, like like the, I don't know, you might call it provinces or something like that. A state, state is, unfortunately, in the U.S. means both Kentucky, but it also means a a uh, sovereign government. Without the dissolutionment 
of the the um, governmental entities that we have now, you will just get a bizarre warring faction. So I'm going to be in my network state, but I'm only going to sort of be in my network state. I'm still going to be beholden to some government, even if it's a friendly government like Texas or Florida, they still want theirs. Like they have a business model. Their business model is extracted from my taxes. They're certainly not going to let go of that on some level they are going to get theirs. And so now I'm, I'm sort of paying guild dues, I guess, to my thing. But it's like, if they can't give me more, then I'm in trouble. And I believe in your idea of the frontier, but like, I need to carve space away for the frontier to actually carry the benefits of an actual frontier. I, there's an aspect certainly of the current financial system, which is Wiley Coyote. Okay. But my mental model is the transition that you're talking about or that we're talking about, the fragmentation, is already happening in a huge way. And the reason – let me give you some examples. Like um, this guy uh, – I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name. is French guy. Gilles Babinet talks about transfer of sovereignty. You think about it, postal mail has been replaced by email. And taxi medallions transfer sovereignty to Uber and Lyft. They're actually the taxi regulators. And NASA has been replaced by SpaceX. And on and on and on, you go to functions of the centralized state that are being replaced by the decentralized network, essentially by tech founders. And, you know, you have things, and I, I mentioned this like a few years ago, but now it's even more explicit. Like a few years ago, like David Cameron, who was the head of a, you know, 60 million something social network called the UK. <laughs> it's a joke, but it's funny. Um, had an audience with Zuckerberg who, uh, you know, runs a 50x larger social network, 3 billion people, Right. And, um, and it was like, Zuck was like, I don't quite say endorsing Cameron, but simply appearing with him, it actually gave Cameron, Zuck is able to communicate with more people on a daily basis than the president, mm. the prime minister of the United Kingdom or the, or, or frankly, any head of state, right? If, if Zuck wanted by to, a lot. by a lot, massive. Right? and if you think about it today, Elon Musk's endorsement by simply appearing alongside somebody is quite important for mm. a DeSantis or a... Um, RFK Jr. or what have you, Alon runs, he's a lord of the cloud as opposed to a lord of the land, right? And um, it's clearly very politically important. They, that's a very important constituency. Twitter may be the most important battlefield in politics right now, right? So, and that is run by entrepreneurs, right? Um, so in many ways, like the state has already given up a lot of power to the network. Arguably, you can say, I mean, there's different moments you could put it at, but in, you know, people you, you, you stay or still say the most powerful man in the world, like about the U.S. president, you know, they say that, right? Um, after, you know, Trump was deplatformed in early 2021 from Twitter, Trump wasn't even the most powerful man in his own country. It's astonishing. Yeah. And that is a, I mean, because the CEOs of uh, Google and Twitter and Facebook and so on and so forth as a consortium, plus others in the in the government and media basically made the decision that, you know, no mas, right? And they deplatform not just Trump, but all his supporters, okay? That is one of several ways in which network is more powerful than state in some ways. Not every way, but enough ways. That's why the network state, it works, it's a phrase that works on several different levels. Um, it identifies leviathans, identifies a unifying thing that combines network and state identifies conflicts between them. It's just like a pair of words that you can unpack in a lot of different and useful ways. The point is though, that basically once you realize network is already more powerful than state in some ways, um, you know, as I mentioned, email, I mentioned the tech founders, cryptocurrencies have more scale. I mean, Bitcoin, Ethereum are bigger than most national currencies. 
Um, you know, social networks are bigger in scale than most countries. Uh, tech founders are wealthier than most politicians and so on, et cetera, et cetera. Like there's already been a significant transfer of sovereignty, not everywhere. Like China is actually, um, China has engineers in the federal government, their federal government, right? Or their national government. And I think by the way, that is like the key boundary line. Essentially your head of state needs to have the skills of a tech CEO, a tech founder, or a venture capitalist, or will eventually lose power to someone with such skills. Won't they also lose power to somebody with guns? Like at some point, because like right now, Tesla's backed by men with guns, right? All of this ultimately is still nested within a government. So when I think about the network state, I get the, the people that are geographically next to each other. If somebody comes and puts them under attack physically, they can defend each other. But if you've got a guy that's part of, I mean, let's just take mega, the mega network state, a very unpopular network state. And so if you've got one guy that's isolated and he's isolated in Minneapolis, like bro is in trouble. So one of the thought exercises I was running as you were talking is, okay, if, if the USSR collapsed now and we have all of these tools, would network states arise in their stead? And I thought what they're going to become is it's going to be protectorates. So it's going to be like mafia rule. You're going to get groups of people and some of them I'm sure will be honorable, et cetera, et cetera. But it will be, it will stay largely geographically bound because you're going to need people that protect you. And so I think it would add an interesting layer in that you could communicate what you stand for and all of that in a way that would be easier. You'd recruiting people would be easier. But at the end of the day, if you're the satellite guy of an unpopular group in your physical area, and there is a breakdown of rule of traditional law, meaning people with guns, you're toast. Like they're going to come for you and batter you. And so they're just going to, you're going to reconsolidate geographically. And once they have to reconsolidate, reconsolidate geographically, I'm like, now the, the traditional state has a way to fight back because you, you can only sort of vote with your feet because you still have to cluster. And say a few things. First is, if the traditional state breaks up, it's actually pretty hard to organize violence, you know? And so if it breaks up, those marauding gangs or whatever are, um, I mean, there's a lot of intermediates between where the U.S. was and where it is and like Brazil and then Venezuela and then like Somalia, right? Like there's, there's a ton of intermediates on that continuum. And um, several points here, right? The first is um, that, you don't have to disclose, you know, like your membership in this community. Um, for example, when you walk down the street, uh, yeah, some buildings have logos on them, but do you know who's living in what place? Do you have x-ray glasses? Like your augmented reality glasses don't necessarily give you information on who's there, right? People could be mm -hmm. Christian. They could be Mormon, whatever, right? All, all the type of stuff. So number one is these communities don't need to be perceptible or visible to everybody. Not everybody needs to be able to see the map or the full map. Maybe you need to hold an NFT to see some of it. Maybe in some jurisdictions where, where one node of the network state is persecuted, it's invisible. Okay. So invisibility is a big part of security. Okay. Like stealth, just like a stealth bomber, except it's a stealth. Don't get bombed. That's a B is that, um, a big part of the physical security problem now, especially in the U S is because we're in this, weird we'll see how long it lasts but this anarcho-tyrannical state where uh 
the state won't defend you, but it also won't let you defend yourself. For example, they're like, throw somebody in jail for defending themselves, right? Or, you know, you this fire somebody for, I mean, this is, there's so many examples of this now, but it's like the state is basically on the side of the criminals, right? De facto, where, uh, you know, this guy is in your case where this guy shot a robber, but then he got charged with murder or something like that, right? That's, that's like non, non, um, it's, it's like fairly frequent. And, um, that's an unusual state of affairs, which may not be able to last that long because people still need to respect and comply with the state for it to be able to go and throw somebody in jail and have that stick for people to kind of not shelter that person and, and, and whatnot. And, um, the uh, that combination of anarchy and tyranny, you know, San Francisco is like the perfect example of this, where the working class Uber driver, um, you know, they they're subject to tyranny in the sense that they have this super expensive parking ticket for being on the side of the road for a second that just destroys their entire day's income. But a crazy guy can smash their window and nothing happens to them, right? So that's that's a combination of the anarchy and the tyranny, right? And um, this is uh, this is something which I don't think will be able to be sustained indefinitely. We'll see. Okay. Um, the point being that if it flips either way, and you have either pure anarchy or you have like an actual civilized state, in a state of pure anarchy, a rough order is quickly restored. Like that that group, you know, like that marauding group gets beaten by a better group, right? And I know that sounds very Mad Max and whatever. You know, in the fall of the Soviet Union, there were organi- there was organized crime, there were gangs and so on. There were civil conflicts. That may be the best model for what's happening. But it wasn't everywhere in the world. It was in the so- former Soviet Union. Right? It was focused there, right? So the closer you are in some ways potentially to blue America, the worse off you are. That, by the way, in, in my view, is maybe the most surprising part of this whole thing. It may be something like COVID where, you know, early COVID, most people – we're totally apathetic about it. Didn't wasn't existing in room. And some people are like, oh wow, this could be really bad. But the least obvious conclusion of all was this this will infect 700 million people, kill 7 million people, including a million Americans dead from COVID, at least all the official numbers. And then two years later, people are like, yeah, it wasn't that big a deal. We lived. Right? That to me is the most surprising thing of all, that the world is essentially already largely decoupled from the US. You saw that graph where all these countries are trading with China, right? And lots of the world is already decoupled in a big way. Russia was able to decouple from the U.S. in the middle of a war, and they're basically okay, right? They're, they're, we, people thought their financial system would collapse. They dro- The whole concept of the U.S. being the indispensable country is no longer true. That's a non-obvious, but it's a really important point. For, here's a, let me just show you two things. This is why this seemingly dry international affairs stuff really matters. Like, this thing, see this thing where it says... Uh, the uh, global distribution of power. It's a, it's like a weirdly phrased question, but do you see the thing on screen, right? Yep. Like basically what they're asking, this is foreign affairs, which is like, you know, on this particular topic, they'll be the absolute last to acknowledge it. They're like the official, you know, publication of the State Department. And so they're asking, the global distribution of power today is closer to being unipolar than it's being bipolar or multipolar. So if you really agree it's unipolar, you're here. And if you really think it's uh, bipolar or multipolar, you're here, right? Um, that say you disagree that it's unipolar, so you're over here, okay? So mm. even the people at foreign affairs polls, it might be 60 or 70, 30. They're saying it's multipolar, which means 
the U.S. is no longer, the D.C. is no longer in control of affairs. So lots of mental models are built on the idea that they've got an organized government, they've got a powerful military, they've got a well-respected currency, they've got diplomatic oomph. And if you start substituting the, the government of don't look up in your head, that's going to be closer, I think, to reality. Here is this lecture, Leonard Mary lecture by Fiona Hill. She's like a, you know, Russiagate kind of person, you know, like very much a, you know, very, very much like a State Department official voice. And Glenn Greenwald and I had the same reaction when we saw this, uh, this talk. She basically said, um, Ukraine, you know, that, that the U.S. has kind of lost the narrative on it. Uh, <clears throat> this has not become a proxy war between the U.S. against Russia. The war is the reverse, right? And basically she said, the war in Ukraine is perhaps the event that makes the passing of Pax Americana apparent to everyone, right? Because, for example, do you know what percentage of the world actually sanctioned Russia? I don't, actually. I don't even have a guess. It's 15%. 85% of the world did not sanction Russia. Wow. Okay. The va- that's why, like- Wow. Okay, so it's wow. the opposite, opposite of the 1930s. In the 1930s, the New York Times partnered with Stalinist Ukraine and was able to uh, – right. in the 1930s, the New York Times partnered with Stalinist Russia and was able to effectively choke out Ukraine, right? Like they they, they helped mm. cause the Ukrainian famine. Duranty wrote all those fake articles. Jesus, that, that whole thing is crazy. Have you read the book, The Red Famine? Yes, and also, you know, this I highly, highly, highly recommend. If you – like the thing is – the New York Times will tell you about everybody else's crimes, but their own, okay? Mm-hmm. And so get this book, The Great Lady Winked, okay? How, and it goes through how um, everything from, you know, the Ukrainian famine, the Vietnam War, uh, you know, like the Cuban Revolution, um, you know, basically every, just like, you know, I was talking about how the tech founders are now sort of endorsing politicians, right, and helping them level up. Right, you know, like Zuck with with Cameron or Elon, with, right? The opposite happened in the 20th century. Like almost every communist dictator had a journalist backing them up. For example, uh, Lenin had John Reed, who wrote Ten Days That Shook the World." Stalin had Walter Duranty. Um, Mao had this guy Edgar Snow, who wrote like "Red Star Rising Over China." Uh, Ho Chi Minh had David Halberstam in the New York Times, who wrote these fake stories about uh, Buddhists, you know, in in being persecuted in South Vietnam. They were later admitted to be fake. It was planted by like a North Vietnamese spy. Um, you had guys like Owen Lattimore that you know assisted the communists. You had um, Herbert Matthews again of the New York Times, who wrote this hagiographical hey, article on Castro that helped him recruit for the Cuban Revolution and made him seem to be like ideologically mysterious when he was just a communist. And on and on and on, right? Like basically, whether it's Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Castro, uh, Ho Chi Minh, there was a journalist there, usually a Western journalist, backing them and writing propaganda for them and getting them distribution and influence. Many of the individual Ukrainians and Russians are victims in this, right? But the New York Times was trying to team up with Ukraine to sanction Russia, but this time it didn't work. So it's like history is running in reverse with the opposite outcome this time. Right, eighty-five percent of the world did not go along with the sanctions because of social media, because of other things. People had a contrary view, and for various reasons, other countries didn't. You know, they were neutral or whatever on on Russia, you know, versus NATO, right? Or at least that, that's how they saw it. To be clear, by the way, one thing I just want to say about this is, I, you know, like 
I know lots of Eastern Europeans, lots of Estonians, uh, lots of you know folks in the Baltics. Many of those people don't want to be forcibly reintegrated into the Russian Empire. Like Putin's invasion killed tons of innocent people. Um, you know, even if like you know he thinks oh NATO had its guns there and so on. There are a lot of other ways, a lot of other things that could have been done other than this. And so I'm very sympathetic to lots of folks in Poland or Estonia or Ukraine that don't want to be forcibly reintegrated to Russia after they just got their independence, right? So I get all of that. Um, what Fiona Hill is talking about is there's, you know, there's, there's the Russian perspective, the Ukrainian perspective, there's the Eastern European perspective, there's the American perspective, but there's also the Chinese perspective, which is, um, you know, uh, which is one thing. There's the Indian perspective, which is why is India, you know, being asked to bankrupt itself for some European war, we're just going to buy oil from whoever, but you know, we'll remain neutral. There's the African perspective. Everybody's got a perspective on this. I think the assumption that you may have of in a background way, right. Of like a competent state that can organize stuff and that'll go after you and so on and so forth. Like China has that, you know, for sure. China is very, very organized. They're, they're like lawful evil. You know what I mean? In, in a sense. I mean, they're not, they're not, com- I mean, lots of Chinese people are good people and so on. I'm not saying all, you know, of course. Right. But let's say if the communist party wants to get you, they're very, very, very organized. Right. Whereas in, in, you know, the U S the blue America, you know, the wokes are like chaotic evil. It's BLM riots. It's, um, setting things on fire. It's, um, it's like cancellation. It's disorganized. It's chaotic. It's sometimes effective, but it's also got a very short attention span. And so it'll surge up and it'll go away like an animal, like, you know, looking and then it'll, you know, if, if, if you're invisible, it can be away from it. Right. Um, and the advantage of, I mean, the disadvantage of chaotic evil is it's very unpredictable in a certain way. You know, it's like it can just surge or whatever. The advantage is it doesn't have like a planning horizon and it's in a sense less dangerous than lawful evil. Lawful evil, I think is, um, uh, you know, it's it's more concerning because more organized, right? Most people, as I said, even only forty five percent of my audience believes that the US can't print infinite money and doesn't have an invincible military. And those are equivalent, like fiat currencies backed by men with guns. If neither of those things is true, if the US can't print infinite money and if it doesn't have an invincible military, which and I think I think uh, for for the reasons I mentioned, you know, all of the stuff on the Fed and the Treasury and the credit card. Uh, crisis and student loan, all those things that we talked about, right? Like how bonds have been devalued that underpins can't print infinite money. It's already an inflationary time. They can't print on top of printing. It'll just cause go out out of control. And why don't they have an invincible military? Because China has this manufacturing Goliath, right? And the U S is terrible at building physical things. It's all those. It's not just the public works like La Sombrita, the bus shade in, in LA or the you know, the bathroom in San Francisco that took 20 years or the $300 million bus lane, but it's also the Zumwalt and the F, you know, 35 and the, you know, aircraft carriers and the Ford class aircraft carrier and the, and the literal combat ship and all these other things the military has built. So, so those are the reasons, of course, these are unobservables. Maybe I'm completely wrong. And, and, you know, the, the state is really good at kicking the can forever. Right. So just decades, the thing, thing keeps grinding on. But I have a kind of a feeling that even as the ability to print and the economic sphere of the U.S. is declining, they're pushing it harder. And even as the U.S. is becoming militarily weaker 
and more disorganized and less competent, they're pushing it harder too, you know? Paul G, you know why you're so interesting? So Ray Dalio is, he's mapping out the six phases and you feel like when he's talking, you're at a 30,000 foot view, it's very useful in terms of um, how to organize your thoughts. Where you pick up the mantle is I'm zooming in on the territory and now I'm seeing the intricacies of how everything falls apart. I'm able to start formulating a hypothesis on how this starts to build moving forward. And because you're so tech savvy, it really feels like you have the closest ability to predict the big arcs. Uh, You've been very honest that of course you could be wrong and who knows sort of how this all goes and it's very complicated, but you have the clearest vision for how the pieces get put together in a world where we have cryptocurrency, we have cryptography, we have the network effects of the internet and all that. It's utterly mind-blowing. I, I can't believe that we've gotten this far. I have so many other questions that um, I could ask. It's absolute bananas. Where can people keep up with you? Balags.com. Maybe you can put that on screen. I don't actually need subscription revenue, um, but what I do want to do is engage people on some of these things because uh, unlike a lot of people, I don't think, oh, collapse comes and then magically the next thing appears. You need to start building the next thing before the collapse. Awesome, brother. The way your mind works is insane. Thank you for sharing it with us today. It was uh, amazing. Everybody at home, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.